This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Levi, Israel, Stephen, Tim, and Sam VR. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Levi. He asks, Why would the Pharisees say that Jesus was possessed by demons if he was healing people with demons? It's a great question, Levi. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? In Matthew 12, the Pharisees say, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Basically, they're saying Jesus has power over demons because he's in league with them. But as Jesus points out, this is contradictory. If Satan casts out Satan, he says, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The obvious conclusion to draw would be the opposite of what the Pharisees say. If Jesus casts out demons, then he is the great enemy of Satan, not his ally. Now, this is clear to everyone but the Pharisees, because they just couldn't admit who Jesus was. They tried to turn everything against him, even when it made them look ridiculous, all because they were his enemies and would stop at nothing to destroy him. And now Israel asks, why is the Olivet Discourse so important? Well, Israel, everything Jesus says is important. But the reason the Olivet Discourse is so fascinating to us is this. It's directed at Jesus' inner circle of disciples, not the general public. So in the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about the future of the church with the founders of the church. Now, the Olivet Discourse is called the Olivet Discourse because it's a discourse or a talk that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives. In Matthew's Gospel, this is the last of the five big teaching sections of the book. And after this, Matthew tells the story of Jesus' final moments with his disciples, his arrest and trial, his crucifixion, and finally his resurrection. Now, taken together, these two reasons, the private nature of the talk and its position right before the final narrative, make studying the Olivet Discourse really fascinating. Now it's time for our big question. Our big question this week comes from Stephen. Let's give Stephen a round of applause. Stephen's question. Why did Saul change his name to Paul? Well, surprising as it sounds, the short answer to your question, Stephen, is that he didn't. Saul did not change his name to Paul. I know what you're thinking. Oh, I see. It wasn't Saul who changed his name to Paul. It was God who changed it. But no, that's not what I'm saying either even though it's very common to think that the Bible teaches that after Saul's conversion to Christ, his name changed to Paul, the Bible doesn't actually say this at all. Take a look with me at the book of Acts. 
at the end of chapter 7, the stoning of the martyr Stephen, that's where Saul is first introduced to us as a young man who people leave their garments with as they perpetrate the killing. They put those garments at Saul's feet. In chapter 8, Saul begins to persecute the church. And in chapter 9, he gets letters from the high priest that he can take to the synagogues so that he can take his repression of the church on the road. Now, it's then on the road to Damascus in Syria that Saul is confronted by Jesus and converted. For the rest of chapter 9, we see Saul proclaiming Jesus, escaping from Damascus, and then heading to Jerusalem. Now, he's the one who's being hunted, so his fellow believers send him to Tarsus to keep him safe. Now, nowhere in Saul's conversion story does it say that his name was changed to Paul. Even though he's now a believer, proclaiming Christ and being persecuted for it, the book of Acts still refers to him as Saul. At the end of Acts 11, Barnabas goes to Tarsus and retrieves Saul, bringing him to Antioch to serve the church there. Acts 11 verse 26 says that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So the followers of Jesus get a new name, but Saul is still being referred to as Saul. Now, Barnabas and Saul travel together throughout Acts 12 and the beginning of Acts 13. It's in Acts 13, verse 9, when they go to Cyprus, which is a large island in the Mediterranean that's part of the Gentile world, that we suddenly read this. But Saul, who was also called Paul. Now, when they leave Cyprus, Acts 13.13 begins, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. From that point forward, the author of Acts refers to Saul as Paul. The question is, what changed? Now, as you can see, the Bible doesn't really explain what happened. Saul did not change his name, and God did not change it for him. Unlike Peter, who was really called Simon and got the nickname Peter, meaning rock, thanks to Jesus, and unlike Abram, whose name God changed to Abraham in Genesis 17, or Jacob, who God calls Israel in Genesis 32, there's no official announcement from God that, hey, from now on, this guy Saul is going to be called Paul. What actually seems to have happened was this. In the Jewish world, Saul was referred to by his name, Saul. But when he traveled outside the Jewish orbit into Gentile lands where Greek was the common language, they called him Paul, which was the Hellenized version of the name Saul. Hellenized means turned into Greek. So Saul and Paul are the same person with the same name, only what you call that person depends on what language you speak. Even after his conversion, while he worked in Jewish cultural settings, he's referred to as Saul. In fact, Jesus, on the road to Damascus, calls him Saul. And in Acts 26, when Paul recounts this story, he makes a point in describing that Damascus Road encounter, saying that Jesus spoke to him in the Hebrew language and called him Saul. 
Ananias calls him Saul as well, and so does the author of Acts, as is said up to chapter 13. It's when he travels to Cyprus that the name changes. And when he writes his epistles, which are written in Greek, he naturally uses the Greek version of his name, which is Paul. Now, this may seem a little confusing, but it shouldn't be. There's someone else in the Bible whose name is like this, someone who would have been referred to by his Hebrew name by Jewish people, but was known by the Greek version of his name to the wider world. Do you know who it is I'm talking about? It's Jesus. The name Jesus is the Hellenized or Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which we translate in English as Joshua. In the Hebrew language, in other words, the Messiah who conquered death and led his people into the promised eternal life was clearly named after Joshua, who came after Moses, conquered the Canaanites, and led his people into the physical promised land. Now, we don't hear that connection because as English speakers, we translate the Hebrew name one way and the Greek name another way. But nowhere in the Bible does it say Joshua got renamed to Jesus. The difference is due to a difference in language, not a change of identity. And it seems that this is exactly what happens with Saul. Like the story of the three wise men, the idea that God changed Saul's name to Paul is simply a tradition that came along afterward, probably influenced by the Old Testament stories of God changing the name of the patriarchs that he made covenants with. But in reality, Saul was always Paul, and Paul was still Saul. Even so, the way the book of Acts refers to him as Saul up to chapter 13 and then refers to him as Paul consistently afterward does have significance. It marks the shift from the gospel spreading throughout the Jewish world to suddenly moving into the larger Gentile culture in a major way. That move is foreshadowed in Jesus' ministry, and it's inaugurated by Peter at Capernaum in Acts 10, but it's starting in Acts 13 with Paul's successive missionary journeys that the focus really moves. And by the conclusion of the book of Acts, that mission is accomplished. Paul declares, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God prophesied by Isaiah has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Tim asks, when Jesus was on earth, did he speak Hebrew or did he speak different languages depending on the place? Well, I might have given this one away, but if you were paying attention just now, Tim, you'll remember that according to the Apostle Paul, when Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus, the language he used was Hebrew. But by the time of the New Testament, the everyday language spoken in Galilee was not Hebrew, it was Aramaic. Ordinarily, when the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark translates directly, it's translating from Aramaic into Greek. Now, Aramaic was a result of the Babylonian conquest in the Old Testament. It's similar to Hebrew, but it borrows a lot of terms from Babylonian. It's in the same way that Greek was spoken throughout the New Testament world as a result of the conquests of Alexander the Great and his successors. 
But because the Old Testament scriptures were written in Hebrew, people would have been familiar with both Hebrew and Aramaic, and it seems pretty likely that Jesus would have been fluent in both. And finally, Sam VR asks, Why do you think that I have good questions for you but forget them right when I grab the Youth Chronicle? Sam, this is truly a mystery, but I have some advice that might turn your entire life around. Here's what you need to do. From now on, you need to carry a little notebook and something to write with, a pen or a pencil. Now put them in your pocket and make a habit out of taking them everywhere. Then, whenever you have an idea for a good question, reach into your pocket, grab your notebook and your writing instrument, and scribble down your idea. The next time you're at church trying to remember all your great questions, just open your notebook, and there they'll be. Simple as that. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.